Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 45, Repatriation with Te Herakeke Hiruini. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Sandy and Helen. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked to James Holt all about modern Māori music, among other random tangents. This week, we are going back a bit to our Tāmoko episodes. In the course of researching for our episode on Toimoko, I discovered that our National Museum here in New Zealand, Te Papa, has a repatriation team dedicated to returning Māori and Moriori remains back to Aotearoa. In this episode, I talk to the head of that team, Te Herakeke Hiruini, all about what the team does and what the process involves. It was a supremely interesting interview, and I hope you learn as much as I did. Enjoy. Let's just crack uh, straight into it. Um, thank you for um, coming on and um, talking about what you do and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so to start with, I guess, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in the repatriation team? Yep, so my name's Te Herekeke Hiruini, so I'm... Um, I'm a descendant of um, various tribal groups around Aotearoa. So I'm Ngāti Tūwharetoa, Ngāti Apa, Ngāti Ruanui, Pakakohi, um, Ngāpuhi, Ngāti Parau, uh, Ngāti Mutunga, Te Atiawa, Ngāti Tōrangatira. And so um, I'm the Head of Repatriation for the Karanga Aotearoa Repatriation Programme, which is based within the Museum of New Zealand Te Papatongarewa. So the main aim of our program is to repatriate uh, Māori and Moriori ancestral remains um, housed or located in overseas institutions. Cool. So what does your role as the, the head of that team entail in particular? Um, so um, as head of repatriation, I have in, uh, oversight over the whole program. And so that means there's four basic tenants to our program or four key areas. And so one is research and scoping. And so that is locating where our ancestors are overseas. And so that um, follows through with after we've located them, um, we start the negotiation process of um, asking for their return from those, those institutions. Um, if those institutions agree, then we physically uplift them and then we care for them um, within Te Papa for a period of time. And so they are placed in our wahi tapu, our sacred repository. And once um, we've been able to um, confirm their provenance around Aotearoa, New Zealand, then we start the process of returning them to their iwi or their rohe, their, their um, the district which they come from around the country. Cool. So just to kind of clarify, you guys only do, um, I guess, what, what most listeners would call human remains. You don't do other taonga in terms of... Um, objects that are found overseas and anything like that it's just um ancestors is that right yeah that's that's correct um our overarching government policy is um only to repatriate maori and moriori ancestral remains um what does happen over a period of time sometimes there's tonga associated um with some of the the tupuna the ancestors that are coming back and so they may be ponamu earrings that are still in the ears um, or they may be huia feathers um, um, or other objects such as whalebone pendants. So 
Um, sometimes the museums will say, well, these belong to the, the tūpuna, so it's best that they return with the tūpuna as well. So we will repatriate those as well. Ah, interesting. Very interesting. So I guess um, how to, to kind of run through a little bit kind of how that repatriation system works, how do you identify tūpuna that you want to bring back? Do people approach you asking hey, I know where this person is, can we bring him back? Or do you guys actively try to look for them or is it a combination of both? Or basically, how do you get about actually finding where people are and starting that process? Well, I suppose it's been a long process of um, um, patriation for, for our country. Um, so the, the idea of um, returning ancestral remains back to the location isn't new to Māori. And so pre-European times, um, toimoko or mummified heads were part of our culture. And so they were sort of um, created for two different purposes. One, if you had a loved one that had passed away and you want to keep, keep their memory close to you, you could mummify their head. Um, but also if you had an enemy iwi or tribe that um, they, you conquered them, you could, and their chiefs or their main warriors fell, fell in battle, you could actually mummify their heads and keep their head captive. And so that would be a sign as you were the, the victor over the, the opposing iwi. But what transpired over a period of time is if you had the head of an enemy iwi, um, you could sue for peace um, over a period of time. So um, the descendants of that um, chief that had died in battle, they, they may come to, to your iwi, the victor iwi, and say, we want to create peace between our two tribes, and if you return the head of our main chief, um, then for a period of time we would, you know, peace would be created. And so that was a tato mm-hmm. Um So those aspects of our culture um, existed right up until, um, well, when Europeans arrived. And so from the time of Captain Cook, um, there were heads that were taken from, from our country and traded um, to overseas institutions. And so um, colonies in Australia, North America, South America, um, and Europe, um, the, you know, the, the original colonizing countries, they were interested in examples of humankind from around the world. And so a toimoko, a mummified head, was a perfect example that could be you know, taken, um, traded for um, and taken back because it was compact, you know, it was mummified and you actually could actually, was the closest thing you could get to seeing a, an actual live native mm. person. So when you've um, kind of, you know, you found someone that you want to, you want to bring back, what kind of research goes into the process? Do you, do you already know who the individual is specifically or do you have to try and find that out? And do you kind of track through time how they managed to get to where they are now? So obviously they, they started here in New Zealand and then at some point they've been taken overseas. So do you need to track kind of where they are and how they got there and that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, there is, there is a bit of a tracking process as part of the research. Um, so prior to, because most of the toimoko, so there's two distinct periods of when the trading occurred for Māori and Moriori ancestral remains. There was a period from 1769 up to 1840 when the treaty was signed. And there was another distinct period from after the treaty was signed right up to the 1970s. And so the people involved in the earlier period from 1769 up to 1840 um, were mainly um, 
tribal rangatira chiefs and also and, and the Europeans um, that would come and trade. And so Europeans would come here for various reasons. You know, if they were in Australia, they wanted trees, um, they wanted um, crops that Māori would grow, they wanted fish, they wanted a whole variety of things. Oh, and seals and whales, um, they were sealers and whalers as well. So that was the initial economic engagement between non-Māori and Māori. Um, but what transpired as well is that these um, explorers or traders or sealers and um, whalers, they also realised that um, a mummified head was quite valuable when they went back to where they came from. And so that's where the trade started from, as was there, there was an interest from overseas markets for something that was uni uniquely Māori. And so why I say um, the Toimoku are uniquely Māori is because we're the only Polynesians that mummified our heads but also had, you know, our unique tamuko pattern on the heads as well. And so that's really where the provenance comes from, is that because it's unique to us as Māori and the patterns, are, the tamuko patterns are unique to us, that that's two bits of evidence that mm. provide provenance. And the other thing is most of them would say um, that are located in overseas museums or institutions is that it's, you know, a New Zealander, from New, obviously from New Zealand, and may have a year that it was um, received um, in the institution in uh, either Europe, the Americas or Australia. So that's, we actually don't get down to the detail of uh, a name of one of the two Panak because most of them don't, well, they did have names, but those names weren't carried with the information when they were trained. I see, that makes sense. Um, so once you've, you know, again, identified someone that you want to bring back. Obviously, it isn't always as simple as just asking the institution or the museum to just hand them back. Um, so kind of how do you work through that process? Kind of what's the, I guess, what's the negotiation process, if you like? Um, well, each country around the world, um, mostly European, North American, South American countries, they have their own legislation and policy in place regarding um, repatriation of ancestral mains, but also repatriation of um, taonga, cultural treasures. So because we're specific to um, human remains, we have our own New Zealand government policy. And so one of the, some of the core or key principles around our policy is that we have to provide evidence or that the provenance is to Aotearoa New Zealand or Reukohu, the Chatham Islands. So they have to actually indicate that they are Māori or Moriori. Um, we also um, can only do um, negotiate, uh, seek repatriation by mutual agreement. So the institution overseas has to agree. So we can't force them, we can't sue them for repatriation. And that's a very New Zealand thing, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a piddly little island in the South Pacific and we've got no political, you know, um, power, so we have to rely on mm. goodwill, and that's something that New Zealanders are pretty good at. You know, getting people on their side, talking through the issues, um, raising the issue of um, you know, these are human beings. Um, no one owns human beings. Um, slavery was over in the 1840s, 1880s. You know, and by holding these ancestors, you're actually saying to us that you still owe our you own our ancestors. So you know. And even good ethics today in scientific institutions or museums, um, 
they would say, oh, you know, give these ancestors back because they should be returned to their communities of origin. So we, we rely on goodwill, but we also rely on, you know, um, conversations that highlight issues of importance of returning ancestors back to their communities of origin. Cool. So do, do you find most of the time that they're quite, um, you know, when you approach these institutions that they're generally pretty amenable, that they're not generally too hostile, if that makes sense? Um, well, I, what I've noticed, and I've been in my job since 2007, so about 13 years, that there's been a change in the practice, there's been a change in the museology, there's been a change in the thinking in museums and institutions overseas. Um, because New Zealand and Australia are quite well connected, we've always had um, a common um, philosophy around supporting repatriation. Um, and so institutions in Europe uh, you know, they're, they're the furthest away from us as a, as a country. And so the significance of um, Indigenous issues is minimal mm -hmm. to them. And so that's where a lot of the discussion comes. And that's where a lot of, where we have to influence them, we have to influence their, you know, work on their, their ethical concerns, um, but also inform them about the um, continuous connection Indigenous people have with our ancestors. And so even though they have been overseas maybe over 100, over, maybe over 200 years, there's still that continuous spiritual, cultural connection with their Indigenous communities. So we break the ball down and we open those doors. Um, but I suppose one of the examples that, has, that people know about is the British Museum. So the British Museum holds artefacts that have been stolen, taken, collected from institutions, uh, from, from all parts of the world, including the the Elgin marbles from Greece. So that particular institution is very hesitant in returning anything. But uh, shortly after I started, I think in 2008, um, they actually returned some Māori ancestral remains to us. And, um, but they also held on to the Toimoko. And so their argument was that um, Toimoko were never supposed to be um, return to the land for funerary purposes. But our argument is, well, over a period of time, eventually ancestral remains would return to the land. They would return to the sacred um, repositories. But also if they are kept um, in a place like Awahi Tapu, then they would have direct um, connection with their descendants. And so by our ancestors still being in the United Kingdom, they're holding them as if they belong to them. They're holding them as if they are captives. And so they don't quite understand the full extent of, of um, what, what impression they're giving um, is um, when they, they continue to hold ancestral remains, particularly Māori and Moriori ancestral remains. Yeah. So it's continuous conversations that we have to have with these institutions. And it's just, you know, because there are so many Māori and Māori ancestral remains, we concentrate on institutions that are more agreeable. Certainly. So um, kind of, I guess, to that point with p the British Museum in particular, sort of semi-recently, um, as part of Brexit, some European countries, particularly Greece and the Elgin Marbles, have said that they want them back. Um, and there does seem to be potentially there's going to be this sort of discourse with the British Museum as to, with not just Greece, but other European countries, getting their, um, you know, their, their various items back. Do you think, 
as that kind of progresses, do you think that'll be positive for New Zealand in trying to get um, not just uh, Māori and Moriori remains back, but also just any kind of taonga in general? Well, I think what has happened over the last few weeks, and it's actually connected to the death of um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, is institutions in the United Kingdom have said that they supported Black Lives Matter, including the British Museum. And so when they tweeted that, um, or they indicated their support for Black Lives Matter, there was a furore amongst people who, who know that the British Museum still holds their ancestral remains. Some of them are black, some of them are brown, some of them, you know, from all parts of the world. And they also hold stolen artifacts. And so it really created, I do know there was a strong response back to the British Museum indicating that don't say something that just because you think it's something good to say, you actually have to return things that um, actually don't belong to you as a museum and return ancestral remains that don't belong to you as a museum as well. So, yeah, so it's the Elgin marbles um, are pivotal. Um, however, there's, there's a range of um, cultural artifacts, cultural treasures and ancestral remains in the British Museum that should be returned. Absolutely, yeah, and I remember seeing that tweet myself and I was uh, less than impressed, shall we say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was quite, quite an interesting stance for them to take, I felt. Um, yeah. given what they have and what they've done in the past. Um, yeah. So to go back to the kind of repatriation process, once you've kind of negotiated the return, um, what kind of preparations do you make for the transport? Because obviously these, you know, being an island, um, all of these uh, people are coming back um, from overseas. So how do you actually prepare for them coming back, either by boat or plane or however they're coming back? Yeah, mostly by, by plane. And so what we arrange with the overseas institutions, because we pay for the freighting, the crating, and we also pay for a small delegation of um, Komatua elders to go and be part of this handover ceremony overseas. And so what we do is that we arrange a handover ceremony um, with the institution. And so we send um, details of what a handover ceremony may look like. Some of these institutions haven't done handover ceremonies before. But the intent of our handover ceremonies is that it creates a bridge between both institutions. And what I mean by a bridge is that the aim is that both institutions come together, um, there is a handover of the ancestral remains, and when the handover is completed, both groups walk away with dignity. And the ancestors, for us, have always maintained their respect and dignity from our side anyway. And so we receive our ancestors with dignity, and we leave that institution with our ancestors with dignity as well. So we spend a lot of time on the detail of the handover ceremony. We spend a lot of time on the detail of packing and creating the ancestral remains and how they will return back to um, Aotearoa. They do come to Te Papa, so we have a formal porphyry um, for them. And so that's where we have the Mana Whenua of Wellington, um, the tribal groups from this particular region, but also um, the Iwin residents at Te Papa. So uh, particular Iwi may have an exhibition at Te Papa for a period of time, but also senior representatives from the government that will welcome the ancestors home. Once they're welcomed back uh, as part of the porphyry, then they're, they're um, carefully placed into our wahi tapu, our sacred repository for a period of time. And then um, their 
prominence is confirmed to different parts of the country. Cool. So, so how do you, I guess, yeah, as you say, the different, uh, the provenance for different parts of the country, how do you figure that out? You know, I'm guessing you, you might have multiple people coming to you saying, you know, they should belong with us. So how, how do you work through that process? Um, well, there's, there's because um, I indicated earlier, there's two distinct periods of um, the trading of Māori and Māori ancestral remains. So prior to 1840, so in 1840, you know, um, the British um, government set up um, the government here. Prior to 1840, there's actually, there's records, but um, not not much detail in the records. After 1840, because most of the ancestral remains left through colonial museums, and so colonial museums, directors or people contracted through those museums actually were the main um, contributor to collecting, stealing, trading in Māori and Māori ancestral remains. And so it's the later period where there's actually really good detail. So the institutions overseas, they wanted to know exactly where these ancestral remains came from. And so, so people like Reichek, Andreas Reichek, he would go to different parts of the country and he would detail where he actually stole the ancestors from. And then he would trade them overseas to different institutions. So it's actually because museums actually have good accession records, as we know where they, um, after 1840, we know where in particular they come from. Yeah, so it's an interesting, um, bittersweet reality, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, British bureaucracy is terrible and amazing both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so do you do any kind of, um, I guess, what, what you'd call local repatriation? Do you um, deal with any iwi um, here in New Zealand and that have uh, remains that belong to a different iwi? Is there any kind of that kind of stuff going on as well? Um, oh no, that, that we I mean, that's our our aim is actually to to um, repatriate ancestral remains mm-hmm. that are overseas. But there are those occasions. Oh well, because what has happened? Even though I talk about you know ancestors overseas, what happened within New Zealand after 1840 is approximately 5,000 Maori and Moriori ancestral remains were uplifted within the country. 1,000 of those or 1,200 of those went overseas. 4,000 of them actually were collected by museums and medical institutions, academic institutions around New Zealand. So there is a process of those um, ancestors um, being returned or hopefully being returned to where they come from. So it does happen domestically, but it's only beginning to happen. Okay, interesting. Um, so... As we've hopefully shown, um, repatriation of individuals for Aotearoa is extremely important. Um, however, a few museums in New Zealand do actually have mummified Egyptian remains, namely at Otago and Canterbury Museums. So do you think we should be repatriating those back to their home as well? Yes, I think. Well, what I do want to indicate um, is that when I started in 2007, um, there's been a total shift in the thinking of museums, not only overseas, but also within New Zealand. And so the shift is, um, and this happened in New Zealand from about the 1970s, is that Māori and Mōdiori ancestral remains were taken off display. And I know within our National Museum, the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa, 
um, the mummy, the Egyptian mummy, was taken off display as well. I think when they moved down to the new location. Um, as a kid, I used to actually go and visit um, the museum, the old national museum, and I, you know, turn on the light and you'll see the mummy. Um, but now, I think we're a bit more mature as a country. We really we realise that actually you have you should respect these ancestral remains no matter what culture they come from and so what has happened overseas is that um maori indigenous or indigenous people have directly influenced um, institutions overseas where they offer respect to indigenous remains and the same thing is happening within australia and new zealand around um, um, Egyptian mummies. It's going to be a slow process, but there is actually encouraging signs that museums in New Zealand are starting to return mummies to Egypt. But it's a complicated process, um, but it is starting to happen. Yeah, no, I'm sure it is. It's just um, when I kind of was looking into all this kind of stuff, it, to, to me, it was um, I spent a lot of time at the Otago Museum during my um, my time at uni and so i was well aware of the 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 mummified remains there and it was just a bit of a a disparity i guess in that we've we've got a you know a dedicated team trying to bring people back it's like well actually we've still got people here that i guess in theory depending on what side of the fence you sit on should really be sent back to their home as well so i found that quite interesting but it's, it's cool to hear that it's gradually changing so part of our work as Karanga Aotearoa, we actually have returned two indigenous um, remains that um, belong that had that did belong overseas, and so we were part of the repatriation of um, Tupuna from Rapa Nui, Easter Island, and so that ancestor returned in 2018, and so we did that in partnership with Canterbury Museum and also Otago uh, Museum also had uh, Rapa Nui ancestry as well. So we combined our our energies and that those ancestors returned. And also in mid-2018, we returned uh, a Native American ancestor back to Washington State, back to their tribal territory as well. So we proactively do it as a museum um, where we can reach agreements with overseas indigenous people or overseas governments. Okay, interesting. So do you, do you get approached often by other countries or other groups outside of New Zealand for, for that reason? Not... Not often, so the Rapa Nui people have done it. Um, we actually, um, part of our research, we want to actually, and so we are wanting to proactively return Indigenous remains overseas as well, because there are some in Te Papa. So we, we actively try and approach overseas Indigenous people as well. But, you know, New Zealand's a quite a little, uh, a nice little country, and we've got, you know, 50-plus iwi, and we've got a common history, and we've been in this country maybe a, a hundred years plus, oh no, 800 years plus. If you're trying to repatriate to North America, where people have been there for 20,000 years. <laughs> bit, bit more complicated, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> complicated, and we don't know, you know, we don't know the context, so we have to go through the process of, you know, contacting the National Museum that will give like a list of all the possible instant, um, groups that the ancestors may belong to. And then, you know, then I have to contact all these groups officially. And then they have to come to an agreement that one of them can receive the ancestor. And so that's where the time, it takes a lot of time and effort. Certainly, yeah. but I'm sure it's worth it in, in the end. Absolutely. 
Oh, it's, it's absolutely awesome. Beautiful. So is there any um, particular tupuna that you are particularly proud of repatriating or perhaps one story from your time with the repatriation team that kind of stands out to you? Um, I think um, I'm one of the most interesting repatriate. Well, I mean, I think all tupuna are important to all of us. Um, the Toimoko are interesting because, like I said, they don't have a, we don't know exactly who they are. Um, but because they have a bit of mystery associated with them, um, they actually belong to all of us. Um, and then that means that Māori needs to actually decide exactly what happens and how we offer respect and dignity um, regarding a final resting place. Or whether, you know, because they are unique um, and they may have some purposes for research in the future, maybe there may be some... Um, agreements amongst Māori for they may maybe a um, there may there may be some research on them in the, in the future. So um, those are the interesting things. But there are some um, skeletal remains that are coming back that belong definitely belong to certain tribal groups um, that I belong to too. So you know that's always good for me to have uh, my my specific ancestors coming back. But, you know, because I'm so multi-tribal, you know, it's really all of them. Anyway, so. <laughs> Absolutely. So is there any part of your job that you particularly enjoy? You know, I guess, what is, what is your favourite part of your job? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, I think um, opening the doors and also influencing institutions overseas to realise that um, museums are no longer around, you know, um, anthropology or seeing indigenous cultures as being um, um, in a time, what was it, stagnant. So indigenous cultures change over time and also we're, we come from living cultures. So our understanding, our connection to our ancestors is continuous. And so that is the main reason why we want our ancestors back because there's still that continuous connection and so we have to influence them. And we are actually influencing um, overseas institutions because they're getting a better understanding of how of perspectives outside of their worldview. And, you know, so our worldview is quite important for us as Indigenous people. Um, but, you know, the, the world doesn't revolve around Europe only. And so there's other ways of seeing um, perspectives of, of the world. As well. Absolutely. No matter how much they like to think it is. <laughs> so um, just the last couple of questions. Um, what's kind of on the horizon for you and your team? I, I realise you probably aren't able to talk about um, work being undertaken at the moment, but is there any work that is kind of just completed that you are ready to share with the wider public? Um, so what I think... What would may be interesting is that when the program first started in 2003, so we are funded by the New Zealand government, so the taxpayers are paying for, you know, this program. Um, what, what was anticipated is that, you know, the government allocated three years, that all this work would be completed in three years. At that time, they thought that there may be 100 to 200 Māori and Māori ancestors, Māori Māori ancestors overseas, but what trans over a period of time is that we realised that there may be over 1,200 ancestors um, that were traded overseas. Um, 
4,000 um, 4, Māori and Māori ancestors that were traded around museums and are still in New Zealand. Um, and so we actually didn't realise the extent of the trade. Um, our program has returned close to 600 Māori and Māori ancestors from overseas. So there's about another 600 to come home. And so we have agreements in place uh, for about 350 to come back. But because, you know, we're under COVID, we actually can't go and uplift them. So I do see our program actually finishing sometime in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, and so the, after the international uh, repatriations are completed, then we'll start on actually returning all the ancestors to where they belong. Cool. I didn't actually realise there was a, I guess, an end goal, that, or a sense that, that it was actually going to shut down at some point. Um, of course, that makes sense, but... Yeah, we're doing ourselves out of a job. So. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting at, is it's, um, it's interesting that the better you do your job, the, the less you're going to... I guess, do your job in the future, um, which is an interesting way of, of, of doing it, I guess. But um, again, all for a really good cause. Um, so last question, um, is there any other work or causes or movements, et cetera, um, that you want to promote, given um, there will be a number of people listening to this? Um, I think there is some interesting things that New Zealanders or um, need to think about museum, museum practice. But also the, the, the rationale why museums were initially established in Europe, North America, Australia, and New Zealand, um, there is actually a connection between, you know, um, the trade of ancestral remains in, throughout the world. And that actually comes from a colonial way of thinking of ownership of indigenous remains, the indigenous people. So it is actually quite closely connected to why Black Lives Matter in the sense that, you know, the ancestors of George Floyd got to America because they were enslaved. And that enslavement occurred from the 1400s up to the 1800s when European ships, you know, either from Spain, Portugal, um, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, um, other parts of Europe went to um, the west coast of Africa and took those human beings and traded them and made them into slaves. And so that thinking of ownership of people actually applied to indigenous people as well. So it's not something that, you know, just happened in the last 100 years, 200 years. It actually has a long history. And museums, because they actually house indigenous remains, ancestral remains, they are connected um, to those elements of, of history as well. So. It's actually quite interesting and it's quite important for us to reflect on as, a, as people interested in history and how the, our past actually still impacts on us. Absolutely, today. absolutely. So um, I think we'll call it there. I haven't got any more questions. So, <laughs> so um, thank you to Hitakeke for um, coming on and um, uh, talking all about what you do and who you are and all that sort of stuff. I found it supremely interesting coming from uh, the horse's mouth, as it were, um, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So thank you again. Yep, thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Te Hedakeke for taking the time to come and chat to me all about the repatriation team. I learned heaps, and I hope all of you did out there too. Next time, we have another dramatic retelling 
And since we kind of jumped back with this interview to our Tāmoko episodes, I thought our retelling should follow the same lines. We'll be doing the story of how Tāmoko and Tāniko came to the world of man, giving Mata'ora and the Wadika the Hans treatment. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. This podcast is a one-man band. If you enjoy listening to me talk history, you can support us through Patreon, buy merch, or give us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.